last time. Um, but it's great to be here. Thank you so much for uh, your support. It's, it's, uh, it's really nice to be able to walk into a church where you're supported and uh, people come up to you that, that you actually don't know and, and they, they welcome you with big arms and etc. It shows that there's a real church that uh, is really supporting and that's for us something really quite special. So thank you a lot for that. Um, before we get stuck into, uh, yes, this very dark picture, uh, why don't we pray? Our dear Heavenly Father, we, um, are, um, we face this dark picture, I suppose, every day as we um, enter into our own minds and own hearts and as we walk around on the streets in our community and when we read the news. And uh, it's very hard to make sense of a lot of this. Um, thank you for your word and the way that uh, it is clear and that it does reveal you and the way that you have been um, dealing with these kinds of issues since the beginning of time. Uh, thank you for your word now, and I pray that um, our hearts will be ready to be um, changed as you convict us uh, and as you encourage us, uh, as we dwell upon uh, the great mystery of, of your death, uh, resurrection in your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I might move this down, because when I get excited, I get really loud. Okay. Um, before last Monday, I'd been to the doctor about once in the past 15 years, and that was for uh, some stitches on, on my chin when I was playing basketball. Um, now, we all know that, that the doctor is not... Um, he doesn't always bring good news, don't we? But they often bring bad news. Well, because we're back in Australia now for this little period of time, our, our organisation, Pioneers, they require us to go to the doctor, and so I went along. And um, I got some bad news. Um, and I haven't told many people this, and some of my family don't even know, um, but the doctor told me that I'm officially overweight. Um, now, now, I know there's a number of doctors in the room, so I need to be a bit careful here, but um, my doctor, I'm sure she's very professional, very good at what she does, uh, but I think she missed a lecture at uni on, on, on weight and, and what overweight means. So what I thought I'd do is, now this is the first opportunity I've got to kind of um, survey a group of people, I thought I'd just get a show of hands as to whether you think I'm, I'm overweight or not. Okay. So if you think that I am overweight, put your hand up. Oh, brother-in-law, that's why, and my wife, who's a doctor, probably, yeah, Red, you think so too? Right, yeah. Well, that's what I thought too. I mean, look at me, I'm, I'm doing all right for 31 years old, um, but I was, I was a bit shocked there. Um, What's the relevance? That's a pretty good question to ask at this stage of, of a sermon. Well, today we come to a text of Scripture that's really quite difficult to, um, to deal with because I think it offends us and I think it offends many people in our society because the subject matter that Paul is discussing here is something that we don't want to hear. He brings people to a place where they have to evaluate their own health, not just their physical health, but their spiritual health. And when they line themselves up against what Paul comes up with, they come to the same conclusion as I, we did. As a non-professional in the area of uh, spiritual health, they say, I don't have a problem. Um, look at me. I'm fine. There's nothing going on here. So when we arrive at verse 18 in chapter 1, I think there should be a few questions ringing in our ears. Paul has made some absolutely ridiculous claims in the first 18 verses. And I think the grandest is in verse 16, which I think we could call the thesis statement of his entire letter, and probably one worth committing to memory. Verse 16, have a look at it. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of for all who believe, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. And I think the questions should be flowing now. You know, what is the gospel? Secondly, well, what does the gospel save someone from? And thirdly, the logical one, and how does it do that? How does the gospel save those people? Interestingly, Paul doesn't start with going to the gospel and describing the gospel. He actually starts with the problem, what he's going to save people from. And I think that's fairly logical. Um, we need to know what the issue is before we learn what, how he's going to deal with it. And so we meet verse 18, the, the, kind of the start of the letter, with a lot of anticipation. What's it going to be? And when we get there, Paul doesn't beat about the bush. He gets straight to the point. He says, God's wrath. Um, but not that um, God is wrathful, um, but that God's wrath is coming. Do you know the feeling of coming wrath? Can I have the next slide? There's me on the right. My big sister, Josie, on the left. I'm not sure which of the twins is there. I suppose Crystal's in the white. I'm not sure. That's my family. About 25 years ago, we were about five years old. This is when me, myself and Grant were kicking around on the soccer field down in Albany. Um, about 25 years ago, we're, we're, we were all standing along this wall. But there was a good reason why we are standing along the wall. Because the wall had been drawn on. And my mum says, stand there and you're not going anywhere until someone owns up who did it. And so we're all standing there. I was told that many of us, three of us, were crying. One was not. Um, Mum goes on to say, you're not going anywhere until someone owns up or dad comes home. He's going to deal with it. Now, um, as we were waiting there, I felt the coming wrath of my father. It was coming, and we were all going to be punished if someone didn't own up. It was dreadful because it was a certainty. My father, he finds the truth out. We didn't know how, but he does. And so we waited. The coming wrath of my father. Um, if you want to find out who wrote on the wall, you can ask Crystal. She's got some inside information on that one. But similarly here in verse 18, the wrath of God is coming, and it's a certainty. Uh, it, it, it should be feared. And when one asks God, well, why is the wrath coming, God? God is not a parent who says, well, just because I said so. Because it is. He doesn't say that. Have a look at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God is not acting as some kind of sadistic despot here. Not at all. And he's not um, acting out of unreasoned logic as the God of love, who he is, um, he's not acting out of character by showing and exacting this wrath either, as many would have us believe today. God couldn't be a God of wrath. Now, God is responding to a state that humanity finds themselves in here. He's reacting to something particular, namely godlessness and wickedness. And look at what is at the heart of this godlessness and wickedness. It's the suppression of the truth. What has elicited God's wrath, well, not only the rejection of God's truth, but the suppression of it, the active bringing down. It's put the mockers on it, smothered what is true. They know what is true, and they actively resist it. They repel it, and they rid themselves of this truth. The worst part about this is that they actually know the truth. 
And this is the Paul's point in the following verses, verses 19 and 20. Read it with me. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, two things, his internal power and divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. This is a first century episode of CSI. The charge against the ungodly is suppression of the truth. The punishment, of course, is God's wrath coming on them. And the proof, which in this courtroom is God's defense, is that he has revealed himself to them. God has revealed his power and his nature in the creation event. Therefore, creation, the stuff around us, bears witness to God as the creator. And humanity, they are guilty because they have rejected God. The old excuse, I didn't know that he was there, doesn't cut it, because God has revealed himself through creation. And by not responding to God on the basis of this creation, well, it says that they are guilty. And so for this reason, the wrath of God is coming upon them. It's a pretty heavy start, isn't it? But there's there's an outstanding question, I think, here. Um, What is the truth that the ungodly have rejected, which is demonstrated by creation, for which the wrath of God is coming upon them, for which they are being judged for? What is the truth? I think this question gets us to the heart of what Paul is talking about in this passage. It gets to the heart of the human condition. I think to answer this question, we we need to return to the very start, Genesis, and that's why we had that read. Let me refresh your memory. God created everything, and it was good. He brought order, and he brought function and purpose out of nothing, out of chaos. And the crowning aspect of his creation was humanity, which was not good, was it? It was very good. And we read that their function was to perpetuate, keep going, and and to um, keep God's order rolling along. And we read in Genesis 1, verses 27 to 30, you can remember it, that God gave everything to Adam and Eve. And he says, rule and subdue it. As I have created it, I want you to keep ruling it. In your rule, make decisions that kind of um, keep what I have created going. It's here that I want to pause for a moment and ask you a question um, about ruling. Have you ever been given the responsibility to rule, but not the power or the capacity to make decisions? It's a dreadful situation, isn't it? Where you've been given the responsibility, you're held accountable for it, but you can't do anything about the outcome. You don't have the power or the capacity to actually put into effect your responsibility. I'm sure you can think of a situation like that. Well, this kind of responsibility is no responsibility at all because you don't have what is needed to be responsible. Well, this is not what Adam and Eve have. They're not, their responsibility was to rule the earth here, but not as brain-dead individuals, robots on this new planet called Earth, nothing like that. They were made with working brains um, that were capable of making decisions. And we see this capacity to make decisions in their role as rulers, especially when we come to that amazing little thing called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. As a part of God's great order, 
Um, he places this tree and says, don't order, don't, do not eat. That's the order that I'm putting in place. I've given, you to, I've given you everything to rule over. He says, now rule over that. When you rule appropriately, you will live. When you rule inappropriately, you will die. With this tree came real responsibility. They had to choose. They couldn't just choose between good and good or God's order and God's order. That, that wasn't the way it was. They had to choose between maintaining God's good order or choosing another order. Choosing an order and living or choosing another order and dying. Adam and Eve, they were real rulers with real responsibility, with the real capacity to make decisions, with real consequences. And how did they go with this? Let me reread verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from, from um, the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Correct answer, Eve. She's right on the right track here. She's doing a great job, isn't she? Verse 4. You will not surely die, the servant says to the woman, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the battleground of any ruler. They have the power and the opportunity to make a decision here. For Adam and Eve, the battleground is this. Are you going to follow what the Creator said or not? His order or your own? That is, do not eat it or you will die. Or are you going to disregard the Creator's instruction and go your own way? This is what they're faced with. No, you're not going to die. Actually, you're going to live. It's a great thing. In fact, you're going to become like God. You're going to know good and evil. I think this is where we come to the suppression of truth's doorstep. Desiring to be like God, wanting to know good and evil. What do Adam and Eve choose? Well, we know the outcome of the story, don't we? They choose to believe the serpent instead of the creator. They choose to believe the created instead of the creator. Let me read verse 6 for you in Genesis. When the woman saw that the tree was good and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. They chose to disregard God's order for the very real benefits, and I think they were, the very real benefits of eating it. You see, they wanted to have their eyes opened. What's wrong with wanting to have your eyes opened? Shouldn't you want to have your eyes opened? Don't we need to know good and evil in order to make good and right decisions? Don't we need to do, know this stuff in order to follow God's order? Well, of course we do, don't we? But that is not what is gained by eating the fruit. Eating from this tree does not give one the ability to choose between good and evil. No, God's already given them the privilege to choose between good and evil. That was the function of the tree in the first place. No, the knowledge of good and evil is not about choosing between good and evil, but choosing what is good and what is evil. Deciding what is good and deciding what is evil. Previously, God's order was good and very good. 
Now Adam and Eve had claimed that right. Good and evil was no longer the domain of God alone, but now it was the domain of humanity too. They had the power to choose God's order, but they refused it. They decided not to follow God's order and not believe in the consequences that God had outlined. Instead, they followed the crafty serpent, the liar, the distorter of truth. They believed a lie. You're not going to die, guys. He twisted the truth to make it look like the truth. You'll know what good and evil is. And so knowingly, see the connection now, so knowingly, Adam exchanged the truth of God for a lie and an image of the truth. They exchanged God's order for their own order. That was the transaction that, place, that took place. Does it sound familiar? Knowingly exchanging the truth. I haven't used the word sin yet in, in this whole um, um, sermon yet, but this is where we're heading here. We're making our way to a definition of what is sin. And the first thing that I'd like to say about sin is that it's not an action. Sin is not what one does. Certainly, sin manifests in sinful action, but sin is not what we do. So what then is sin? Well, we see here in Eden that sin is ultimately a state of the heart, a heart attitude towards God, the Creator. Our model here is Adam and Eve. They didn't believe the truth, which we have understood today as God's good order, the way that he has created things. Instead, they would prefer to deny that and lift themselves up into a God-like state and do it from there, choosing what is good and evil, choosing what is good order. In fact, I think that was the, the serpent's best lie, wasn't it? You can become like God, he said. Well, we know that God is very clear about his demands, don't we? The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You are not God, I am God. And the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart and soul strength. As your God, I want your heart. In both of these, God is God and he demands heart's loyalty. Sin is a state of the heart that rejects God as the creator. It's a problem. And here we see Paul in his letter to the church in Rome. He's bringing this truth home to everybody. Sin is a state of the heart that rejects God as the creator and replaces him with the other created things. Creator for the created. And we read that here in Romans that all people have done exactly what Adam and Eve did in exchanging God's order with their own. And so Paul says that in the same way that Adam and Eve were punished, so too are we, so too are everybody. God's wrath is coming upon those who suppress the truth. Now we can narrow in here, I think, on the big question, what is the truth? Because we've got a better picture of what Paul is talking about. In verses 21 23 and 25, we see that God is the creator, and as the creator, he is to be glorified. That's his presupposition, that's what he's working with. And the wicked, well, they are refusing to glorify him as the creator. And what does refusing to glorify the creator look like? 
verse 23. Listen to the wording. They exchanged the glory of God for images. Verse 25. They exchanged the glory of, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The vocab is exchange. That's the issue here. To deny the truth is about exchange. And this is the basis of sin. This is the reason why the wrath of God is coming upon the wicked. The glory of God, the truth of God, has been exchanged for images and a lie. This is sin. Images and lies are not the real thing. An image, you know, is a flat, too deep representation of something that is real. But it doesn't contain any real substance. It looks real, kind of, but it's not. And a lie, well, that's even worse, isn't it? That's a figment of our imagination that doesn't even exist. It's a problem. The wicked are serving these images and those lies instead of worshipping the actual 3D real thing. By deciding what is good and evil, they are denying the Creator and His order. Now, they are the creators of good and evil. They decide what is order. And, and have a look how Paul describes this order. It's actually in terms of disorder, isn't it? And, and, um, in terms, and Paul uses um, um, sexual terms to, to show this disorder. We see this in verse 24, uh, 26 to 27. And in these verses, Paul describes the disorder as sexual impurity, and sexual confusion. It's quite interesting that he chooses this. And here Paul reinforces the point that sin is of the heart because he says that um, it's a heart issue because he says that it comes from a heart desire which, result in the de- which results in the degrading of their bodies with one another. This is the disorder that's coming from their heart's desire. That's the first thing he says. And then we read that people of the same sex were sleeping with one another. You see, Paul has chosen the most basic, fundamental, divine order here, found in the human race, to show the disorder, that of sex and its place in community. Essentially, the place of sex and the nature of sex, as God has designed it, has broken down. It's not been reserved for one person of the opposite sex in marriage. No, no, far from it. We rule, we decide what that is. They decided what was good. And as we read on, it's clear that this this basic disorder is characteristic of the fundamental issue of humanity. We're seeing that this is the breakdown of God's original order. Have a look at verses 29 to 31. These people, who the wrath is coming on, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Disorder is ruling. Relationship is breaking down. This is characteristic of humanity. Disorder rules. Human order rules. This is sin. And for this sin, the wrath of God is being poured out. There is no escape. Dad is coming home. And of course, I think at this point in time, the famous passage must be quoted, for the wages of sin is death. 
But we don't have to skip to chapter 6. I'll save, I'll save that for later uh, for you guys to work out. But we don't have to get to chapter 6 to work this out. We're told this in our text. And I think we often gloss over this part of this text. Verse 32. Although they know God's, no, although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve those who practice them. They know that death is the result. They know that it's going to come on those who are in this state. And what do they do? They continue. But not just themselves, they're not just continuing themselves, they're actually saying, yeah, it's okay for them to do as well. It's fine. It's a horrible situation. Sin is a corrupt state of the heart which leads to death. It was a heart desire that led Adam and Eve to make the exchange. And the death that we see there in the Garden of Eden is separation from God. It happened. And Paul confirms it here in Romans 1. It's a heart problem that needs heart surgery to be fixed. If sin is merely about what one does, then all we need to do is change our actions. Apologize to those we might offend. Live a better life. Well, that's called moralism. I think this is what we've been forcing on an unbelieving society for way too long. What we saw in Eden and also here in Romans is that the actions of the sinful human are not the primary issue. If a tree bears bad fruit, sure, it's got bad fruit, but that's not the primary issue. That is an issue, but not where it starts. It's in the tree itself. If the tree has bad fruit, it's natural that the tree is bad. If the heart is corrupt, one's actions will also be corrupt. It makes sense. The question that this passage is throwing in the reader's face is, how do we think of sin? Is it a moral category or is it a picture of the heart? Are our lives consumed with ticking boxes as we get rid of sin after sin after sin? If that is the case, then Jesus is nothing more than a moral teacher and a good leader to follow. His death and resurrection and what it actually did is useless. But if sin is more than mere actions, that is a total corruption of the heart, that we are in need of, then, then we are in need of something more than a good teacher, aren't we? No amount of moral living will deal with the punishment coming on those with corrupt hearts. No amount of moral living can change the orientation of the human heart towards God. And that is the issue. And I think this is why when the Bible talks about salvation, it t- talks in terms of heart transplant. Think of Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, one that is alive. This is the message of the gospel that we need to hear regularly, that the world needs to hear for the first time. God is in the business of heart restoration. He offers new hearts for old stone hearts. Hearts that have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Hearts that have rejected God's order in place of their own. And it's for this reason that Paul can say the gospel is the power of God's salvation. 
The gospel is God's power to save. The gospel is how God is going to deal with this problem of heart corruption. Who? Who is it going to save? Well, it can save all of humanity. Whoever has rejected God's good order, that's who it can save. From what? Well, we've seen the consequences of sin, the wrath that is coming upon people. Death. How? Well, we find out that it's by putting that wrath on his son, Jesus. This is the great news of the gospel which people must hear, that we must hear. In the gospel, sorry, the gospel is a story where we see a man called Jesus take God's wrath on himself. And in another garden called Gethsemane this time, Jesus demonstrates what real rule is supposed to be. What real rule as a man is supposed to be. He says, I will submit to my Father's will. Not my will, but your will be done. And then Jesus gets up and he walks to the cross. And he dies. In his death, he took on the wrath of God that the wicked deserve. That is right rule. Living as God would have him. Jesus as God, showing us the way. Being what we were supposed to be. To conclude, the fall of humanity is about um, how humanity fell from being a right ruler. The story of the gospel is about how humanity is reinstated as a right ruler under God. That is real freedom. Responsibility and power and opportunity to exercise it. The question for us today is, will we decide to stay as the self-imposed ruler of our lives or accept God as the rightful ruler? Well, let's be changed by the gospel, the power of the gospel, so that we can give God the glory that he, as the creator, deserves. And I think if we do this, the fruit will be obvious. We said before about the bad tree, I think about a good tree, it's the same thing. If it's a good tree, it will produce good fruit. A good heart produces good fruit. When we're changed by the gospel, we will live like never before. Our priorities become arranged according to whose order? Not ours, God's. All of a sudden, the world looks very, very different. Employment is not just for money to pay the mortgage. Family is not just the next logical phase in life. Retirement is not the just dessert for years of hard work. Thinking is not just what our minds do. Money is not just that thing that we pay for things with. Time is not just something that we use up. If God is the creator and we have been given new hearts, then we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. We don't dominate our lives. God does. I'm not going to tell you what that looks like for you. Because that's for you to work out. You see, this is true freedom in the gospel. It's a, it's a spectacular and marvellous thing. We're released to understand and live this. To know your, our responsibility and to have the opportunity to make decisions accordingly. 
That's our responsibility as rulers in this world. So take hold of that freedom and live as you, as we have been created. We will not be fooled into exchanging the truth of God for a lie and an image of the truth which the world wants to tell us and wants to fool us by. No, we will take responsibility. We've been saved from God's wrath and so now we live as those those who have been saved. This is the great privilege that we now have to once again have the opportunity to glorify the Creator as the created. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, um, when I look at my life, it's, it's clear that the world does seep in and fool me. And I think it's true of all of us that um, we are blindsided by our culture and by um, the things around us. And it seeps in and it uh, fools us and it deceives us. And it empowers us to be God uh, in place of you. God, I pray that you will give us perspective to see that you desire our hearts and that you demand our hearts to worship and serve you as the created. Give us a perspective that um, more and more that we are created, created for you to worship you. And I pray that in times when we are deceived by lies and by images that the world does throw us, that tries to convince us that our order is good, I pray that you'll bring us to a place where we will see that by your spirit. I pray that you'll give us amazing um, sight to see um, the lies that is thrown at us. Thank you for the amazing good news that you have saved us, taken the wrath that we deserve. Thank you that we are no longer um, um, waiting for the scary dad to come home to pound us or to whatever, but... Thank you that you are an amazing God who is loving, that you've provided your son as a way out um, to give us life and to give us freedom. I pray that you help us to know and love this freedom, to take responsibility in this state and be the created people that you have um, designed us to be. We pray this so that you would be glorified in our lives and in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's fitting that we finish our service by singing Amazing Grace through its God's grace that we have the hope that we have. Let's stand together. Like me.